In our gospel text this morning, Jesus speaks of himself, and then he speaks of the Father, and he speaks of the Spirit. This is one of the central texts that have been used historically for what is called the doctrine of the Trinity. Today is Trinity Sunday, right? It's also Dad's Day. So we say Happy Father's Day to you, and from the Americans, Happy Father's Day, God. <laughs> it's a holy day in the Christian church. Uh, it's why your clergy are wearing collars this morning, by the way. Um, it's also the day when we stop and we sort of leap into the deep end of the theological pool. Yay. <laughs> God being Trinity means God is one divine being eternally existing in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means that God is one divine being eternally existing in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That clears it up, right? <laughs> the ancient church creeds explain it further. Thus, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And that clears it up. By whom all things were made, both in heaven and earth, who for us and for our salvation came down, from, came down and was incarnate and was made human. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. The conversation about the Trinity is obviously not a light conversation. The problem is, is that we post-Enlightenment Protestants hate complexity and don't really accept mystery. I fought the notion of mystery for the first number of years that I was in the ministry and as a Christian. I mean, like any good modern, I believe mystery can be figured out, you know, with, particularly as a Christian, with prayer and a maybe a better understanding of the Bible. And I tried to oversimplify the Trinity, making comparisons that seemed to clear up the mystery. I used to think of the Trinity like water, you know, that uh, it's one thing, water, but there's three manifestations. There's liquid water and gas. It can be steam and ice. But that isn't faithful to the teaching of the Trinity at all. It may seem clearer, but it's not faithful. It turns out that God is beyond clarity and that the truth be told, none of us know what we're talking about, <laughs> even though I have degrees. <laughs> God certainly carries clarity, but he also reaches beyond it. God inhabits places that we have no words for and no comprehension of. Gregory, one of the ancient church fathers, wrote this, quote, The nature of God is beyond the power of humanity to understand. We can study the world around us and see that God is. 
but we cannot find out exactly what he is. We can only arrive at truths that tell us what he is not, like he is incorporeal, which means he has no body. But not any positive, what he means by that is adequate, conceptions to tell us what he is. We are compelled to use figurative and anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic language is just uh, using language that's like human-like, um, like saying God has hands or, or using the pronoun him. Uh, it's just to kind of help us give some sort of imagery to him. He says that's all that we can use. But we must remember that all such language is only figurative. All the saints in the Bible, privileged as they were, even the apostles themselves, only knew God in part. This includes the works of God that transcend our powers of intelligence and of wonder, how much more the God who created them, end quote. This means that the very concept of an infinite God is very difficult for infinite creatures to muse about, to think about, or to describe. When I was a kid, um, the image used for ghosts in cartoons was a creature that had a bed sheet thrown over it. Remember Casper, some of you, the friendly ghost? There's unfriendly ghost, but this one was friendly. Um, we, the, 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 the sheet was thrown over the ghost to give it form, right? The ghost was not the sheet, but we needed the sheet to see it. See, this kind of thing is what we do when we try to give description using words for God. We're simply trying to give God shape um, when God really is beyond shape, beyond words. Descriptions are really very pale analogies of perfection. We cannot represent the eternal with finite words or images. The problem is God is not a this or that. God is not a thing or a what. God is the I am. So what does that mean exactly? (laughs) When teaching of the Trinity um, shows us, what it shows us is that on some level, God is pure mystery. And that is a mystery that is never solved. God may be revealed to us on some level, but only we ever only see through a glass darkly. What we know is only by revelation, not by observation. God reveals himself to us in some ways. The triune God is best described uh, as the one who is self-giving, loving, and is basically this movement of self-giving and loving between persons. The technical term, which I know you'll love, is perichoresis. (laughs) It's a word that simply means rotation. That's the best word we can come up with to describe Trinity. That somehow, as you look at God, it's like God is a dance of Father, Son, and Spirit. And just like if you watch the uh, church fathers would say, a couple dancing, and sometimes you see the one, and sometimes you see the other. That when we look at God, sometimes we see Father, sometimes we see Spirit, sometimes we see Son. But you can't stop it, really. Stop God. You can't really dissect or analyze God. He's beyond analysis. He is dance. And Christianity is our call into that dance with our God, Father, Son, and Spirit.
We enter via personal faith. We enter via being within the church, particularly when we participate in worship and when we come to the table and when we lift our voices in prayer. There's something about those things. It's not exactly what we're doing, but what God is doing in us as we're doing. We enter the perichoresis. We enter the dance. But we must always be aware that our we have this penchant to put too fine a point on God. And we like to think we know God and we can describe God. We moderns, we have this inherited perspective that there is no such thing as mystery. I mean, our very notion of science is breaking up mystery and finding out what's really going on as part of the modern project that believes that everything can be understood. If we just break it down, into constituent parts. It's called reductionism. We think that we can take any idea, any concept, anything that appears too complex and simply break it into its bits and pieces, systems, cells, and atoms, and then we'll understand it. Then we can comprehend it. Mystery is a bad word to us. But not all things are simple. And when you try to make something very complex or mysterious simple, you lose a lot. Take my dog, Frank. He was our white West Highland Terrier who left this world about three years ago. I don't think he's one of those dogs that goes to heaven. <laughs> but I digress. If, <laughs> if you dug Frank up this morning and analyzed his remains, you could really tell quite a bit about him. You could tell what kind of dog he was. You could tell how old he was when he died. But you wouldn't know a bunch of the important stuff from cutting him up and putting him under a microscope in little bits and pieces. You wouldn't know the tricks he knew. You wouldn't know how excited he got or what he looked like when you said, want to go bye-bye? Frank was much more complex and mysterious than his constituent parts could ever reveal. So much of life is filled with mystery beyond constituent parts. Think of the innocence of children and what they do when you look at them and watch them. Or the wonder of love. How do you describe it? Or how we're impacted by the death of someone we love hard to explain why we feel what we're feeling, how they impacted us like they do or did. Humans carry deep waters, complex waters. The clearest simplicity of philosophical modernism, the reductionism, there's a place for it, but it misses much, and we must be cautious when we try to bring it into religion. If mystery pervades the existence of created beings. How much more for the uncreated one? Mystery remains. This morning, I want to focus particularly on how our worship should be influenced by mystery. I think our worship should reflect the mystery inherent in God. Mystery should be seen in our prayers, in our practices, and in our music. 
Everybody loves to talk about music because everybody has an opinion. There should be clarity in our worship too, don't misunderstand me, but there should also be complexity. So let me talk about prayer first. I love to pray, to simply unburden my soul to God in my own language, spontaneously and freely. I love that. But I, and I also love tongue speech. I'm a Pentecostal at heart. I believe in the power of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And that's all stuff that just kind of flows from the heart. I love that. But I also love the more complex theological praying that breviaries, breviaries are prayer books, like the Book of Common Prayer in the Anglican tradition, the kind of prayers they give us. So for an example, I, I can pray spontaneously. I love to for people who are lost without a knowledge of God. And I can say, God, please, for the people that don't know you, for the people that have no conception of you, help them see you. And it can be beautiful and it can be rich. But then I love praying written prayers that address that issue in a more theologically robust and maybe poetic way, like this one from the book of the common prayer, book of common prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name, Amen. They're both wonderful prayers. I love that we have written prayers of the people that we do every service. They're carefully written, prayerfully written by people in our own congregation with a view towards good theology. Could we just open the mic and pray for stuff? Absolutely. But though spontaneous prayers are valid, I honestly don't like them as much. And I don't mean this to be mean at all, but oftentimes when we just have open, spontaneous prayers, sometimes we tend to devolve into rambling. Father God, thank you, Father God, that you're moving in the world, Father God, and Father God, we ask you, Father God, that you were Father God, move in the Father God. And, and after a while, you go, okay, okay. Few people pray well spontaneously. So praying spontaneously is better than not praying at all. But I like the intentional prepared way, and I like it on purpose. Because I think it captures or gives us an opportunity to be captured by more than the simple. It's not less anointed to pray prayers spontaneously than to pray them that are written. And prayers that are written are not less anointed any more than songs that we sing are less than I mean we could do songs up here where every time they got up they just started playing some music said I'm just gonna sing a song about Jesus today why don't you join with me and we'll sing about the Lord I mean you can make everybody go <laughs> we'll try to catch you give me something to catch right we all get that there's some songs that we have grown to love and we jump on those and we ride them to glory well I ride those written prayers into glory. And I love the ones our congregation write and pray. I love the written Eucharistic prayers. When we go up to the table, there's usually a prayer, a prayer that we pray. I do spontaneous sometimes, might do today because I'm blathering on too long here, but, but I also like the deep theological trajectory of historically proven used Eucharistic prayers. Then there's the altar calls, right? 
I mean, I love calling people to an encounter with God. For years, I did altar calls evangelistic style. Every head bowed, every eye closed. And then we say, if you're here, and it's beautiful, if you've never really had an encounter with God, if you'd like to open your life to Christ and inviting people to kind of make this commitment to an altar call. But I began to see that it wasn't only the person who had never really surrendered to the Lordship of Christ who needed the altar call. Then in reality, I needed more altar calls. And I think all of us need more altar calls every week. And so when I ran into the historical altar call, that's, uh, <laughs> that's done every week in the historical liturgy by the church. I said, let's do that. And so we do it. Here's our altar call. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of God. What a cool altar call. I also discovered that for the first 1,700 years plus of the church that they viewed coming to that table as an altar call to receive Jesus, to open our hands and to receive the physical presence of Christ and receive him into our lives. I think every kind of altar call has merit. Don't misunderstand me. But I like the complexity of the liturgy of the historical church because I think that on some level, it reveals something of the Trinity. Now, most of us are children of revivalism, which I love. In fact, a big chunk of my PhD dissertation is on revivalism. So I'm a big revivalist person. Revivalism is about a now encounter with God. It is to capture our hearts, to motivate us to a life of obedience on, on, uh, to God. We need revival. <laughs> we need revival. <laughs> so you're supposed to say amen right there. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, but the goal of revivalism should not, only be, should not be the only goal of our worship. And I don't mean singing worship, I mean the whole thing, the integration of all that we do, our worship. Our, our, our worship is not to just be about having an encounter, but it should be about being caught up with the person of God. Fasanans et tremendum, that's how they, they would say it in the Latin. It, it's the idea of wonder and awe about God, about helping us order our lives to surrender to God. And that's why there should be sign and symbol that's in the historical Christian worship, in my view, that was cut out by early revivalism. And it made sense to cut some of that out because revivalists pared down the liturgy to singing and preaching and prayer. They stopped using Trinitarian language. Let's just talk about Jesus. It's so simple. I understand what that was about and I love revivalism. I just love more. The problem with historical Christian worship is that it's so opaque. Same problem with Trinitarian thought. Liturgy. <laughs> There's this new show that's been on for the last several years called Handmaid's Tale. I, of course, I've never watched it. I've just heard about it. <laughs> Blessed be the fruit. May the Lord open. <laughs> these, these people are reciting these liturgies that are creepy. And so here we are in this culture and we come into a church where we do the creepy. At least potentially perceived as creepy because we don't see it anywhere else. 
It's odd in our culture. Or people bowing at certain places in the context of a service. We, we, no bowing happens in our culture. We don't have any queens. We don't bow. You know, even the Asian culture, at least they, we, they're used to bowing to acknowledge and honor each other. We don't do bowing. And so we look and say, well, that's just weird, right? Maybe it isn't just weird. Why the weird clothing? Why the sign of the cross? So, well, that's just Catholic. No, it's not. That's from the second century before the Roman rule ever started. The confusion that goes on at the table, eating the flesh and blood of Christ, what is that about? The use of Trinitarian language in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so opaque. But what is the opacity and the question and the mystery of liturgy, the sign and symbol of it is also its beauty. I mean, in historical worship, you know, you have these sign and symbols and candles and smells and bells and liturgy and Eucharist, and it all takes time. You have to take time to even orient what is going on here. I came from a religious tradition that didn't like that. We wanted clarity and cultural relevance. I thought plainness meant boldness and no compromise. Just tell it like it is. No room for silly sign or symbol. I focus mostly on Jesus because of that. Seldom mention Trinity. Trinity is too complex. Our singing, our prayers were about Jesus, plain and simple. Everybody needs Jesus, which is true. But it's a misrepresentation to say Jesus is easy. Jesus is part of Trinity. Jesus is Trinity. I loved plain songs. Now my son co-wrote a song that actually I love that he got it because it fed my grandchildren but the one was <laughs> I am a friend of God I am a friend of God I am a friend of God he calls me friend okay put that up against praise God from whom all blessings flow Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. See, much of the songs we sing because the revivalists oriented are about me, Jesus, God loving me. They're about me, really. Wrap me in your arms. I am a friend of God. Me, 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 me. You for me, 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 me. Now, don't misunderstand me. I love singing those kind of, I mean, it's it's not like I don't love. I love singing this morning. We had a couple of real Jesus-y me songs. I love those songs. But what if worship isn't just about you? What if it's about God, which on some level should leave you saying, what? Hmm? Not just I get it. There are a lot of beautiful worship songs emerging in the world through highly gifted and deeply worshipful people, and I love it. My hopefully gentle critique here is that words and themes matter. Theology matters. There's a pop theology that makes God our buddy. 
or one who is at our beck and call or our lover. We should be cautious here because what we end up believing is what we sing. The Latin phrase is lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi, and it means as we worship, so we believe, so we live. As we worship, so we believe, so we live. As a modern American person, explicit and clear was always my default. I wanted everything to be that we were doing to be absolutely clear, to not create any question. But when we are entering into a space that is to represent God and our relationship to God, trying to be clear is a kind of deception. Because we see through a glass darkly. We pretend like we see it oh so clearly, but we don't. I think doing some of the deeply historical things wrapped in story, though they're not easily explained and sometimes a bit strange, they ultimately help us worship a God who is not easily explained. That went over pretty good. (laughs) You know, it's not unlike a wedding. If you'd never been to a wedding, you'd wonder what was going on. You bring a little kid to a wedding. Never been to a wedding? And they'll have a host of questions. Um, You'll have to do some explaining because not all that's done in a wedding is all that clear. Why the setup? Those guys and gals standing there, what's that about? Why are they on each side? Why is the girl walking down the aisle? Who's that guy with her? And why is she in a white dress? Kind of an odd white dress. I've never seen that dress on the street. What is that white dress about? It's never, it looks expensive. Do they wear it all the time after they're there? What is going on here? What's up with something old, something new? What does that mean? Why are they, what are they saying to each other, these words that they're repeating? The rings, what are they doing with rings? Why are they exchanging those? And that's just the American kind of wedding. Uh, here's, uh, let me show you something from an Indian wedding. It's a little different. Bit of a tension in there. 
try to kind of angle to get the garland on first. Whoever gets their garland on first is supposed to have like the power and the upper hand in the marriage. <laughs> Sonia and Harsh are now separated by the Theresala, a curtain for the remainder of the ceremony. The Jilakarabalam is the main event at South Indian weddings. The couple takes a pace to bitter and sweet herbs and places their hands on each other's heads. The different flavors are meant to represent the joys and struggles of life. So there's some things there that are familiar and some things there that are strange, but they're deeply rooted in story. And if you were to go to one of these, you'd have lots of questions. That doesn't mean it's wrong. And here's my friend, personal friend, who is an African, and uh, he was from a, um, a place in Africa where they had different traditions, so they did a, a church wedding but then they had two days of other festivities. This is a piece of that, watch. That was Brent Sharp right in the end there where you saw him together. <laughs> what was that all about? King and queen clothing, what, what's that all about? Oh, it's rich. You'd be asking questions if you're at that wedding. You'd say, what is, what's going on? What are they doing? Doesn't mean it's illegitimate. It just means it's steeped in story that you're not quite familiar with. Mystery doesn't always mean wrong. And then here's the strangest one, but probably my favorite. These are the New Zealanders. here. This is touching her.
Watch the groom. He gets involved. A little Pentecostal, <laughs> quite a liturgy, quite liturgical motions. Imagine bringing your friend to this. You would have to say, no, there's going to be a few things you don't quite get. Please don't misunderstand this. Uh, they're going to yell at each other like they're going to war, but it's really something quite sweet. In fact, look at the bride. Watch how tears come. Something was deeply beautiful about that to her. Each of these marriage liturgies are filled with history and culture and sign and symbol, which would take you time to orient yourself to. And there are cultures, as many as there are cultures, hundreds of them, there are differences like this. Which one is right? They all are. One more thing. Lots of American worship music has been captured in concert-style worship, which kind of looks like a U2 concert, right? I'm going to show you that dear in a second. Don't misunderstand me here. I love concerts. I love concerts. But watch this. This is YouTube. Da, 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 it's a hymn. Da, 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 da. Forgive me for the uh, music, the sound quality. I just wanted to show you, it's definitely cool, fun, exciting, relevant to the culture, emotionally moving. Now let's look at an example from concert worship from a pretty popular church in America. What? Spirit of God, 
fun, it's exciting, it's relevant to this culture. It's emotionally moving. Truth is, I actually like this kind of worship music. I can get captured in it. It's a moment, a great experience, better than a good movie. But as a leader in Christ's church that's responsible for the formation of souls from childhood to death, I'm not convinced the goal of worship is to primarily be fun, exciting, relevant. You can certainly get lost in a sight sound public experience like that of concert worship. And arguably there's an appropriate time to get lost. But I think there are supposed to be more than times where worship should position us to, to be excited and more for it to position us to face life and to live well. I think really that's the goal of the corporate worship experience over time. I, I don't know if I'm more right. I'm just saying I'm after something different. I think we need to discern what our worship is actually doing. I'm just not convinced that, that some of the kinds of worship that American churches embrace, and I'm not saying this with judgment, it's a question, is really preparing us for life as it is. I'm not sure that a sight, sound experience that's personally Exciting prepares us to hear the doctor say, you have four months to live. Or a boss saying, I'm sorry, we have to let you go from your job. Or your spouse saying, I want out of this marriage. Or how does that kind of worship prepare us to throw our heart and our money and our energy to right wrongs that flood our culture from racism to sexism, to class inequality, or to face the complex issues like those surrounding immigration. Today, 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 hundreds of families will lose their babies in developing countries because of completely curable diseases like malaria are stealing their children. How does... I am a friend of God, or wrap me in your arms, help us to even be touched by their pain. How does it help us weep with those who weep? Those songs still matter. I, I'm not being critical of them, just to be critical. They're just not the only ones that do. The upside of concert worship circles and churches is it's easy to invite people to them. They're so, I mean, they're cool. You'll love it. It's like a concert. And then there's this motivational speaker who's really good. But we're in, a, we're in like a New Zealand church wedding church. <laughs> it's a little different. And if you invite someone here, you're going to have some explaining to do. Okay, uh, just let me know there's some, uh, you know, these opaque things like this Eucharist, we're saying we're eating the blood and body. Uh, we got this bowing stuff going on the side of the cross stuff. We, we probably won't stick out your to our tongues and yell and beat our chest unless we move to New Zealand. But, but I get that this is a tad strange, but know this, you need to know this. There is careful thinking behind what we do. 
We do believe the adage, lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. We do believe as we worship, so we believe, so we will live. Are we right? Well, if we are, we're not the only ones right. We are all right to one degree of another. God created 14,000 different kinds of ferns instead <laughs> of one. Certainly, I think God is cool with different worship styles, right? I do think we are right for what God has called us to do. And I love that what we do does carry the weight of the historical church. So let me just stop with this. If you think that the services that Peter and Paul and John and the rest of those first apostles look like, that they were like concert or, you know, soaking style worship, if you think that those with worship, with music and instruments and lights, if you think that's what those services where those early church people gathered, that it was like that, I hate to burst your bubble. The imagery was more like this that we find in Luke 4 where Jesus enters Nazareth and on the Sabbath day it says he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. Here's some liturgical motion. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Then he reads this text. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and then went to sit down, and then all attended to him. It's liturgical motion. Very specific. Very intentional. We don't have to do what we do, but we are not novel in doing it. And what if there are theological outcomes to liturgical order and movement? What if the elements of a wedding ceremony that we do week in and week out carry embedded history and embedded meaning that form us in ways that we need to be formed, especially in the midst of a modern world that is constantly trying to form us into ways that are unfaithful? What if this matters? <laughs> 